Welcome to the Women in Family Law podcast. I'm Hannah Markham, the chair of the association. Women in Family Law connects, encourages and promotes professional women across the field of family law in England and Wales. We offer advice, support and mentoring. And of course, these podcasts. Welcome everybody to the Women in Family Law podcast. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Rachel Cooper, who is a barrister at Quorum Chambers dealing with all sorts of uh, family law. The reason I'm interviewing her actually is that in 2020, she won Young Barrister of the Year at the Family Law Awards, quite an accolade, I'd say. And she also uh, does podcasts. She's the um, host of podcasts for Family Law Week. So I'm turning the tables, Rachel. Welcome. (laughs) You certainly are, Suzanne. It's not often that I'm in the hot seat. I'm usually doing your job. Well, there you go. You're in the hot seat today. Just going back, Rachel, did you always want to become a lawyer? No, I didn't actually. At sort of 18, 19, I went to Leeds University to read English because at that point in time, I didn't have any clear vocational aspirations. I think from the age of about 10, I'd lived just outside the city of Lichfield in, in rural Derbyshire, sort of Staffordshire, which is a very safe, docile sort of city. It's also a very white city. And in the 90s, I was one of the only of my friends to have a non-British parent. Um, my mother is from Belize in Central America, which many people have heard of today, but hadn't back then, and um, was considered very foreign. and. I know now that she really struggled to sort of fit into British society and maybe that was particularly because we had spent five years of my childhood living abroad. We lived in the Yemen um, where I'd attended a Dutch school. I returned when I was eight and I think, um, you know, growing up in, in that kind of environment really teaches you about fitting in you know my mum had to remember to wear like a jacket to go to the sook we learned to speak words in Arabic Um, I learned to speak Dutch to fit in at school so you always know what it feels like to be an alien a visitor in in other places so I think when I was 18 really all I wanted was adventure to find a sense of identity and, and a place I could call home and it made me really laugh recently. And my parents sent me my year 13 yearbook. And on one of the pages, someone had done a prediction of what people would be when they grow up. And it said under my name that when I grew up, I was going to be a man. And I think I, think I must have forgotten that because maybe I found it quite hurtful at the time. But now that I'm more sort of aware of gender and identity politics, I think it probably just acknowledges how ambitious and driven I was um, at that time. And and wanting some sort of success, which perhaps to my peers at that time felt manly. So it wasn't until much, much later, really until I was at university and and a friend's parents said to me, you know, have you thought about becoming a lawyer? That I really started to think about it. Until that point, I'd only really come across Ali McBeal and Atticus Finch in terms of lawyers that I knew. So yeah, no, no, it was much later on that I then decided to go into law. What a, a fascinating answer and insight. <laughs> um, just so initially you trained as a solicitor, why did you take that route rather than just going straight to the bar? Yeah, that's right. I did. Well, well investigated. Um, I trained as a solicitor at Han & Co Solicitors and I qualified in May of 2015. I 
think there are, there are two things I really want to say about that, Suzanne, if, if I may, in terms of the reasons why I took that route instead of going straight to the bar. The first point is really, I think, a point about trusting your instincts, which I think is really important as a lawyer, as, as anyone listening will know. I had done some marshalling um, under His Honour Judge Charlie Kemp down in uh, Hastings, and he had told me that he thought I should go to the bar, and, and having done so many pupillages, I thought I would go to the bar as well. But when I started the GDL, it was 2008, it was the financial crisis, and I took a pragmatic decision that I thought I had more chance of getting a job as a solicitor than as a barrister. And while I received great training at Han & Co, I was never completely satisfied in that job. I just always felt there was something slightly missing and I didn't really know what it was. And I didn't really identify it until I took a job as a judicial assistant at the Court of Appeal where I worked under um, our now president, uh, Andrew McFarlane and Lady Black um, of Derwent. Um, and it was there that I really realized that what was missing was the going to court the analysis of the law. I also really loved being on the red carpet, being able to listen in to the judges' discussions, which was really fun. And it was after that that I thought, I'm gonna apply for pupillage. And that's, that's where I made the transition. There was also just a second point I wanted to make, which was really though that I think, irrespective of the route that you take into this profession, that nothing is ever wasted. And, and it's really a point that arises from WILF, and it's one of the reasons why I think Women in Family Law is such an important organisation, is because of the promotion of friendships and of women supporting women within the profession. And I have to say that from my time at Han & Co, I have some of the most amazing friendships with women who are still solicitors now and some women who are now barristers who are the most incredible support to me in this profession and really... I don't think without them I would either have gone to the Court of Appeal to be a judicial assistant or I would have applied to go to the bar. And I think, you know, this is a job where if you are a bit of a worrier, if you are a bit of an overthinker, which, which can be really helpful in terms of doing your job well, you need friendships, you need relationships who are going to be able to robustly support you and help you to discern truth from reality. And so I think those are my two points that really, really make friendships in this job. They are the ones that are gonna support you and help you. And secondly, trust your instincts, but also you will get there in the end. I think you will find your place in the end. Rachel, I've got a comment and a question. My comment is I entirely agree about friendships. I think it's so important. It's quite a tough job. And I think having friendships really is so fantastic in terms of supporting. Also, obviously mentors and sponsors. And that's something that women in family law really major on. And my question is for those who don't know, how do you transition from being a solicitor to being a barrister? Well, I think there's different ways depending on how long you've been qualified for. I hadn't been qualified for very long. So I had to just do a, a transition exam. So it was an ethics exam and an advocacy exam, which I did at BPP. Um, and then I had to do the pupillage. I think if you've been qualified for, I think it's more than five years, if a chambers will take you on, you can just transition without having to do a pupillage at all. Um, so I think it sort of varies at what stage of qualification you're at. But for me, I had to do an exam and, um, and also the pupillage. Thank you very much. So just changing tack a bit, 
in your career, what do you think have been the greatest challenges that you've had to overcome? I think for me, I think there are two really um, challenges that I've had to overcome to do this job well. And I think both of them are related to mental health. I think the first challenge that I've had to overcome are my own insecurities in me. So I don't know whether you call that the, the inner struggle. The second challenge, I think, is something that was touched upon in the interview you did with Hannah Markham of Queen's Council in your International Women's Day Wilf podcast, where she talked about learning to deal with the secondary or vicarious trauma that we experience as a result of the work we do, which I suppose I'd call the sort of external struggle. And in terms of the inner struggle, I think for me, it's, it's probably summed up best by um, Michael Horton of Queen's Council, who is, he's just been made up to silk this year. And he has written an article for Family Fairs, which he very kindly sent to me. It's due to be published soon. And in that, he talks about how even now, having been doing his job for as long as he is, to be as recognised as he is within the profession, to have been made up to silk, when he got the email telling him that he had been appointed, he wouldn't believe it. He refused to believe it because he thought that perhaps it was a mistake. And he thought, oh, we're not going to say anything to anyone. I'm not even going to believe it myself until I see the published list. Because once they've published the list, then they probably can't take it back at that point in time. And I think for me, that sort of sums up the inner struggle that we all have as, as a starting point in this profession. I think added to that, um, it's not a secret, I've tweeted about it, I sort of had an eating disorder when I was at university um, and that was really a manifestation of my own inner struggles with confidence and believing in myself and I think coming to the bar, being a barrister, really spotlighted for me those insecurities and really the imposter syndrome the exposure that I felt felt really acute and I sort of felt questions like you know who am I to join this sort of hallowed profession you know I'm not clever enough I'm not persuasive enough I'm not posh enough I'm not confident enough I didn't go to the right schools and universities and as a pupil and an early tenant I sort of felt terrified about speaking out about the fact that I was feeling that way because I thought people would judge me or lose faith in me or lose confidence in me solicitors wouldn't instruct me you know that those kind of fears that I had and I think you know I'm very lucky that it didn't spiral out of all control and, and that was because I did speak to a friend who was also a judicial assistant at the same time I was and he gave me the name of a therapist who I still see today and who is hugely helpful to me in terms of my confidence when insecurities come in that we talk about those and that's an incredible resource to me the second is the support I found around me and that has happened through the podcast through meeting people through the podcast who have been honest and vulnerable have talked about their own insecurities and that goes back to your point about mentoring really and that can be you know mentoring with a big m where someone is actually in a mentoring relationship with you or with a small m where people will just pick up the phone and speak to you sometimes if you're feeling a bit insecure or you're not sure about something I mean I remember when you Suzanne called me during the first lockdown just to see how I was doing to see how my work was going and that felt so reassuring to know that there was someone out there more experienced than me who cared if I was okay and, and doing okay. And I think, you know, those little moments can make a massive difference to your overall feeling. Um, 
in terms of the outer struggle, I mean, I've, I've written an article, which I think we might talk about in terms of dealing with the outer struggle. But I think this was made very plain to me recently. I did a case or acted for a local authority where there are allegations, of course, of controlling behaviour and parental alienation perpetrated by a father. And it was a horrible case, like really difficult case. But the day before we were due to start the fact-finding hearing, he instructed his solicitors to circulate what essentially were pornographic videos of a witness um, giving him oral sex. There was no warning in the email that came that the videos had that content. I just opened them up late at night when I was prepping and suddenly was bombarded with this material, which I hadn't been expecting. And frankly, I found quite traumatizing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's those things. You then have to just put that away, get on with your job, cross-examine that person who you've had to see in that um, you know scenario and you do it because that's your job and, and it's important and because you're committed to the work that you're doing but that stays with you and you have to find a way to release that and release those images from your head to release that sort of feeling from your body and that I was hugely supported by members of my own chambers, by my friends who, you know, I've already mentioned are so important. But, you know, dealing with that vicarious trauma is something that we just have to continuously, I think, learn to deal with. Because, you know, in some ways, other things for me, things like, oh, just have a bubble bath. You know, that doesn't cut the mustard when you're dealing with the kind of stuff we're dealing with. No, I agree. And, and thank you so much for your candor in that answer I think it's really helpful for people to hear that everybody at times struggles in different ways and I think everybody has still got a lot to learn and that sort of brings me on in a way to your article that you've written about well-being and your brilliant top tips most of which I have to say I'd sort of worked out for myself but some new ones as well so thank you very <laughs> much for that um can you tell us a bit about what you think we could should be doing considering in relation to well-being particularly at this time during the pandemic yeah well i think as, as i set out in the article which was highly highly influenced i need to give them proper credit um, to a book called burnout by emily and amelia nagoski but i think what was really revolutionary for me was the way that they separate out stress and stressors um, and that the stresses are the things, you know, seeing the videos, someone shouting at you in the street, you know, a judge being irate, the other side shouting at you about something. You know, those are the stresses and you can get away from them. But the stress is what remains in your body. And it's a physiological thing, because when you feel stressed, your body changes, your body adapts in various ways, which I set out in the article, to that stress in order to basically help you to survive. And for us, for lawyers, that could be really helpful because it you know, gives you very sort of tunnel vision. You're focused in on the moment, on the survival, on dealing with what you're dealing with. So in some ways, that's really helpful to us in terms of the jobs that we're doing. But then we have to go away and we have to rejoin our lives, our families, our friendships, our social activities. And we have to find a way to release that stress from our bodies if we're going to be healthy and be able to kind of do this job for the long term. And, you know, the ways that they describe being able to do that is, you know, chatting with a friend, chatting with someone you trust, having a positive social interaction, hugging someone for 20 seconds, because that's how long 
you need to feel held to feel that you're safe. There's also a six second kiss, but I don't suggest doing that with colleagues. Um, uh, <laughs> Nor in a pandemic. <laughs> Nor in the pandemic. Um, but I think, you know, it's, I think for me, it's, you know, that actually it's, again, it comes back to reaching out. I know that after that case, that, I, that I've just described, I reached out to my roommates in Chambers and we have a WhatsApp group all together. And one of the things that it says that can help release that stress is laughter. Um, and anyone who knows me knows I have this very loud um, laugh, which I sort of try and keep under control in, in, in court and, and in the workplace. But I sent a message to them saying, you know, please, can you send me any funny videos or any jokes or any sort of funny stories that have happened? And I was sort of bombarded by these sort of funny videos and funny gifts and things like that, which, you know, I sat in my garden and just sort of laughed at all of these things. And that was so releasing. And I think little things like that, even in the pandemic, even when we can't see one another, can make a huge difference to our lives and our stresses and our ability to do our jobs. Um, and so that's why it felt you know important to kind of put that information out there thank you very much and changing tack again in terms of achievements which are the achievements that you've had are you most proud um achievements i'm most proud of i it's a really <laughs> such a difficult question i think i think there is one clear winner which is the standout moment which was being part of the team which took the case of Reeti, a child um to the supreme court uh in that case i was so fortunate to work with mark toomey of queen's council alex lang and dr rob george and it was working with them, their experience, their knowledge was such a privilege. But also it was such an important case, you know, looking at the proper use of the inherent jurisdiction, whether that should be used to deprive children of their liberty, whether or not that is lawful. And for me, this is for, for really, really vulnerable children who are the children where you're looking at secure accommodation orders and applications it's so important for them that they're not just being left in caravans or houses across the country that aren't regulated, that aren't registered. And certainly for the child whose case we were acting upon, she, she was incredibly vulnerable and had been left in a, been placed in an unregistered placement, which was unregulated. And, and that was, you know, that wasn't right. It wasn't suitable for her. It didn't give her what she needed. And, and that, so it felt, both for my own professional life, but also um, in terms of its its content and the difference it would make to potentially many, many children um, felt really hugely um, important. I think also the podcast, I love doing the podcast, I've loved meeting people. Um, I've loved the work that I've done recently. I've done lots of cases recently involving coercive and controlling behaviour and parental alienation. That's felt really important and really sort of great work I think also I did a I published with Hannah Minty who's a partner at Russell Cook's Listers a chapter in the resolution handbook on prenuptial agreements and the sort of law 10 years on from Radmacher um, and looking at you know how the approach to the courts had changed particularly in respect of needs since Radmacher and but looking really at the fact that we're still looking at the same two strands of attack in terms of setting those um, agreements aside if, if someone wants to um, and that was really great Hannah it was lovely working with Hannah and I'm proud of that work as well so yeah 
those would probably be my proudest moments. <laughs> so you're a, a real all-rounder, aren't you? You know, I think that's what's great to be able to do both children and financial work is absolutely fabulous and and you know long may that continue i know you know over time people often get very pigeonholed but i think fantastic for you at the moment to be able to do both i think that's fantastic brilliant and so are there any things that you think we ought to be changing in the world of family law anything that sort of jumps out to you straight away you may not have had time to think about that by the way we've been gabbing on for so long you may not have but you may have something what i think needs changing in the world of family law i mean i think we're in a really interesting time in terms of procedure i mean when we think about financial remedy cases and the pressure on the family courts and the fact now that we you know quite often you'll wait i mean at least six months in some cases a year between fda and fdr fdr and final hearing and you know, that's not a criticism of the courts, but there is sort of this increasing gap between those who can afford to get a private FDR um, or look at arbitration and those who can't. And for families being able to move on, I think the delays, I mean, I've mentioned the financial cases, but, you know, it's, it's as present, although not quite to the same extent in children cases. And that that is a real problem to my mind, because as things move on, it really increases acrimony, it increases stress, people get more and more entrenched in their positions, and it becomes harder and harder for us to really try and get to a resolution that, that everyone can live with. And so I think that issue, which I, I don't claim to have a solution for, I think to my mind is, is a really, really massive problem. And, and it may be that if we move to a situation where there's a hybrid way of dealing with things where, you know, case management hearings, direction hearings are dealt with remotely, but other types of hearings are dealt with in person, that perhaps things will be able to move on quicker. I'm not sure. But yeah, to my mind, delay is, is a huge problem and, and that really needs to be looked at quite seriously. Yeah, and I'm sort of hoping that um, that will happen, I think. Um, the recovery committee are looking at that right now. The Ministry of Justice are considering it. So I think we've got some people on the ground looking at that. And I entirely agree uh, with your answer there. I suppose my final question is, what would you like to tell your younger self, Rachel? If you could now, with the wisdom that you have, look back, what would you say to yourself? I would love to tell my younger self, well, firstly, to be more confident and that she has a right to feel confident in herself and, and to not always be so worried or panicked about everything. But also, I think that everything will be well. I think that is what I definitely feel now is that in life, things will work out there will be difficult times you'll go through moments where you think I'm never going to survive this or it's never going to be all right but it will and you know as long as you're honest and you persevere and you're kind and you reach out when you need to and you work hard when you need to and you are honest about the things that are important to you everything will be okay 
and and I think in your heart if you know that deep down then you can get through almost anything but I do think you need mates that for me is a massively important thing we're not islands we need one another to do this job in particular but I think in life in general too and that's a lovely positive answer to finish on so thank you very much for all of your clear answers for your honesty and bravery and very many good wishes for the future thank you for all of that uh, Rachel Cooper lovely to interview you thanks so much Suzanne it's been amazing thank you for your time Thank you for listening to the Women in Family Law podcast. Our theme music is Low Tide by Sam Hare, found on Spotify. Please visit our website, womeninfamilylaw.net, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WIFLaw, and follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.